Hello, and welcome to another episode of In Awe and Wonder. I'm Kristen Hamilton. So I wanted to start this episode by giving you an update on the YouTube channel idea that I had. I was thinking that I would be able to do a live stream on YouTube on Tuesdays at one o'clock Eastern time. I really didn't plan ahead too well. <laughs> I mean, I knew what I was going to do for the first episode. It was just a technical issue to where I had only had my channel verified for 24 hours before I attempted to do the first live stream. So I figured out that I had to download a whole other software thing onto my computer in order to stream. Um, it wasn't just as simple as hitting the camera button on your computer and pressing record. So um, anyway, I played around with that on the fly and I attempted to do the live stream anyways. I actually went through with making the recipe that I was going to do. Actually, it was two things. But afterwards, I went to look at it and my settings were set all wrong. So there was a huge lag time and things just were not looking or sounding well. There was like no sound because everything was so backed up on the video side of things. Um, it was just buffering all the time and skipping and it was horrible. So I was like, I cannot release that. So I deleted it. And uh, now I at least know what to do. I have the software on my computer. I reran the wizard for it to reset the settings back to um, at least a better setting so that it wouldn't keep on buffering as much. I just don't know yet if my computer can handle the streaming capabilities. I might have to resort to just doing traditional pre-recorded videos, which I will do and start posting some up on the In On Wonder YouTube page just to have some videos up there and start getting some subscribers. And then maybe in the future, I will play around with some streaming again and see if we can get that working. But I just wanted to let you know what was going on in case anybody was going there and looking for it or wanting to subscribe and you're not seeing anything or whatnot. That's what's happening. So anyway, just to transition then into our actual subject, we're going over chapter two today in the book, The Joy of Fearing God by Jerry Bridges. This chapter is called A Parable of Awe. So it is specifically looking at the word awe and what that means and how it sort of fits into fearing God. So just real quick, I wanted to start out by saying that in a church that we used to attend years ago, I heard a sermon where the pastor was talking about the fear of God in some way. I'm not exactly sure what the whole sermon was, but I do remember him talking about that the fear of God doesn't mean fear in a terrifying way. He was on the right track that it is more about honor and reverence and in a loving sort of way, at least for the believer. But we do need to realize, too, that there is still an element of fear, definitely for the unbeliever. That would be a terrifying, dreadful way. But even for the believer, there is still an element of fear, fear, if that makes sense. So I just wanted to sort of unpack that idea. It wouldn't it just wouldn't be in the same way for believers and unbelievers. So we're going to take a look at that. So I'll start with some definitions. The definition of reverence, because we talk a lot about reverence in the fear of God, is a deep respect for someone or something. And then a real quick definition of awe that I looked up was a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear or wonder. So awe includes the reverence of a deep respect, but it's also mixed with fear. And this definition said, or wonder, but I've seen others include both fear and wonder. So then going on with the definition of awe that was in the book, Jerry said, it is an emotion in which dread, veneration, and wonder are variously mingled. And veneration just means great respect and reverence. And wonder means surprise and admiration. 
A couple of other definitions that were in the book is submissive and admiring fear inspired by authority and a fearful reverence inspired by deity. Awe includes emotions of fear and dread, respect and reverence, admiration and amazement. And the book also says that a profound sense of awe toward God is undoubtedly the dominant element in the attitude or set of emotions that the Bible calls the fear of God. Now, when the word reverential is with awe, as in reverential awe, that would be a good definition of the fear of God. Reverential indicates specifically directed toward God. But Jerry wrote, there are many facets and outworkings of the fear of God in a believer's life. Under these is the profound sense of awe toward God that provides motivation and driving force for all the other elements that together make up the biblical portrait of fearing God. So awe is the motivation and driving force for all of the other elements in fearing God. The beginning of chapter two starts out with a parable about a Marine. And even though I don't have any close family in the military, it was still a very good analogy or parable showing uh, a better understanding of all of the elements that do go into fearing God. And I'll just read the summary real quick from the book because the summary actually where Jerry is breaking down what the whole parable was meaning is the very helpful part of it. Okay, so it says, there was the initial awe of his drill instructor, an awe which in that setting was an emotion of pure fear, a dread of being punished or humiliated for the slightest infraction. Later, in the presence of the general, he experienced an even greater sense of awe. It was a sense not only of fear, but also of self-abasement, as he realized that he, a mere recruit, stood in the presence of an officer whose rank and authority were vastly superior even to that of his drill instructor. Next, he was thrown into day-to-day contact with the general and had opportunity to observe both his personal character and leadership skills. He began to experience a different kind of awe, not of fear, but of respect and admiration. Yet even now, he was always conscious of the vast difference between his and the general's respective ranks. He knew that although the general was cordial in their relationship, he would tolerate no unseemly familiarity. Butch was careful to maintain a respectful demeanor at all times. Finally, after the rescue from the burning car, Butch came to realize how much the general cared for him personally. His sense of awe toward the general grew to include the amazement that this commanding general of a Marine division would risk his own life to save him. And while he would thereafter continue to maintain a respectful distance in deference to the general's rank, he would feel a special bond of love and gratitude, inspiring him to strive even harder to please the general. So we see through the parable how the Marine was in fear and dread of his drill instructor at first. And then the general came and he was in greater awe, which would include both the dreadful fear and probably the wonder and amazement. And he recognized his position to where the general was so high in authority and superior to him. Then Butch, the Marine, got an assignment as the general's driver, so he was in contact with him every day and got to see the general closer, his personal character and leadership skills, and that brought on a respect and admiration for the general. But he was careful not to get too familiar with him to the point where any disrespect could have been taken, so... Finally, in the parable, the general rescues Butch from a burning car. And so it went a level deeper now to where Butch realized that the general would risk his life to save him. So he had a special bond of love and gratitude that would motivate him to try to please the general even more. So that is sort of the unfolding of the fear of God from an unbeliever to a believer as we're coming to Christ and then growing by learning more about God and his attributes and realizing that he gave his son for us to atone for our sins and to bring us into his family and have eternal life with him. 
Obviously, the unbeliever is going to be terrified and dreadful of God as they should. When the judgment comes, it's going to be total dread and terror like they have never experienced before. So in the book, Jerry goes into talking about how the true meaning of awe is so little understood in our culture today. We have an overuse of the word awesome. And I even remember as a teenager, I think it was our youth pastor who did bring that up at some point with us in the youth group that he was telling us people use the word awesome either out of context or not totally realizing what it meant and for things that really weren't the true definition of awesome. And he was sort of telling us that a word like awesome really should only be reserved for God and the things of God, basically. I mean, that we could say something in nature might be awesome, but while in that regard, we would be also focused on on knowing that God was the creator of that thing in nature. And so we were essentially worshiping and praising God himself for that. And so to use it for other more frivolous things, like that was an awesome piece of pizza, or uh, that's an awesome hairdo or something, because I know the word awesome was way overused probably in the 80s. And so it shouldn't be used for those types of things, because the definition of awe does include dread and fear. So he writes that, for example, a tornado in the proper sense of the word awesome should be called awesome. And why? Because there is an element of actually being afraid of the tornado. I mean, it is a big, huge, natural phenomenon that we can look at in certain ways as being part of God's creation. We can be in awe at its size and its force. But also, if you're in the path of that tornado, you are genuinely, literally afraid. So in that sense, that tornado is awesome. But we use the term to refer to something like an ice cream sundae was his example. So it would be an awesome ice cream sundae, meaning that it tasted really delicious and that we enjoyed it a lot. But are we actually afraid, terrified, in dread of that ice cream sundae? Maybe a little bit if you're worried about the calories and watching your weight or something, but, or if you have diabetes and you need to watch your sugar intake. But normally, no, we still are not like in total dread and fear that that ice cream sundae could be taking our lives or something. So we get to the question, should we be afraid of God? There are some books and things that talk about God being wild or untamed. And that would be in the sense of, can he be trusted? There is a quote from John Murray in the book. It says, It is the essence of impiety, i.e. ungodliness, not to be afraid of God when there is reason to be afraid. The scripture throughout prescribes the necessity of this fear of God under all the circumstances in which our sinful situation makes us liable to God's righteous judgment. We see from the very beginning with the first sin where Adam and Eve in the garden were afraid of God. They actually tried to hide from him. And then later we see the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.18. He said, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So people were acting neither in awe of God nor afraid of his judgments. And there are similar sentiments in the Old Testament and in the Psalms. I wanted to point out Psalm 36.1 in particular. It says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. And then I wanted to share the note that my Reformation Study Bible has on Psalm 36.1. It says, The psalmist identifies the root of all evil, just as Proverbs 1.7 cites the fear of God as the beginning of all knowledge. The fear of God that springs from faith is a special response to revelation, the reverential awe that recognizes total dependence upon the Lord. In the absence of reverence, a different type of the fear of the Lord will be experienced, namely dread. So there and also in the book, Jerry writes that the root of all evil or wickedness is a lack of fearing God and not being afraid of his judgments. 
There's a quote by John Calvin in the book that says, All wickedness flows from a disregard of God. Since the fear of God is the bridle by which our wickedness is held in check, its removal frees us to indulge in every kind of licentious, i.e. without moral restraint conduct. The Bible links the lack of the fear of God with sinful conduct. Abraham linked the absence of the fear of God with the lack of moral integrity. So the idea of the no fear of God before their eyes really seems to encapsulate our modern day society, how there's so much craziness you can see that people do not have the fear of God in their eyes. About that, Jerry writes, there's no fear of God before their eyes. What could be more descriptive of our own society today? Our denial of any objective moral standards or even our basing of morality upon society's consensus instead of God's word is tantamount to saying, who is God that we should obey him? Like Pharaoh of old, our society today is neither in awe of God nor afraid of his judgments. So he goes on to say that that is prevalent even in our churches today. And then he says, in our churches, you might ask, do you mean even Christians should be afraid of God? Haven't we been delivered from the prospect of God's wrath? Doesn't perfect love drive out fear? And he says that we'll go on to explore those questions in future chapters. But for now, think of visiting the lion pit at the zoo. He talks about how you're safely separated from the lions or tigers or whatever it might be at the zoo by usually big trenches or moats or also fences and usually big walls of glass and other things that are put up just to create safe space so that the animal cannot get to the people. But we notice even then that there's a certain caution and respect and he says even a nagging fear of the potential danger of the lions that make you glad that you're separated from them. And I do want to share one story that happened to me a few years ago. My kids and I were visiting my parents, and so my mom and my aunt went with me and the kids to the zoo, and we came to the Bengal tigers. And at first, all the tigers were over on their side, and this zoo was set up a little bit differently where there was a small strip of land that the tigers could walk on to come over closer to the glass so that people, you know, if the big cat wanted to, it could come over to the people and the people could see it closer, but still through the protective glass. So when my mom and my aunt and my kids and I were all standing there at first looking at the tigers, they were all over on their piece of land across the big trench. And so my mom and my aunt and the kids decided to start walking and going to the next exhibit. And I noticed one of the cats got up and started walking um, over to that strip of land that would lead over to the glass area. So I hesitated and just stayed to watch. And as the cat came across the strip and over towards the glass, it saw me and I was watching it and we sort of locked eyes. And so it was like this scary, like weird moment where I was looking a Bengal tiger in the eyes, which I probably shouldn't do. And, um, and it was looking at me and it started just like walking towards me. And as soon as it got over to the piece of glass where I was standing, it did like a small little lunge and a bat with its paw and uh, opened its mouth. I don't think it really let out a roar, but anyways, I saw its teeth up nice and close. <laughs> and there were some other people standing sort of near me and saw this whole thing and they like jumped back. I didn't jump, but it was just such a weird moment. And I probably didn't jump because I had two cats. I had a Bengal cat at the time, which she was tiny anyways, but not dangerous at all. <laughs> uh, but I'm a huge cat lover. And so I'm used to cats acting like that and playing like that or 
even if it would have been trying to kill me, like I just knew I was protected, but yet its actions didn't scare me, even though it was a really, really large animal. But that part in the book just made me remember that whole experience and sort of brought it to life a little bit more because even though I didn't jump, like I said, it was still sort of a scary moment. I did have a burst of adrenaline go through me and I was very, very, very glad for that glass to be there and that it held up to the little like leap and paw swipe. But (laughs) uh, otherwise, that could have been a very different story. So that right there is sort of a dread and also a deep respect for the large cat and its teeth and claws and what it can do. So for now in our discussion, we've been delivered from ultimate wrath of God, but not guaranteed deliverance from temporal judgments. So like the wild tiger, uh, we would be separated from that tiger It could represent the tiger as the wrath of God. And as someone who is a believer and saved, born again, there is that safety shield there, that glass that is protecting us from the wrath because of Jesus' imputed righteousness on us and his atonement for our sins when he died on the cross. So for the unbeliever, they wouldn't have that protection at the end of their lives. They're going to have to succumb to the wrath of God. So God stores up good things and blessings for us as believers. And he also disciplines us. In my Bible reading, I came across a verse that shows even believers, though, even though we are protected, we're not going to be judged in the same way as unbelievers that we will not be eternally condemned to hell. We still have some measure of, I think, looking towards some sort of judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In the book, Jerry does talk about how it would be vain for us to think that judgments only come in biblical times, like back with Nadab and Abihu, or Uzziah, or Ananias and Sapphira, where all of those figures in the Bible, they all did something that was a sin or forbidden or commanded not to do, and God took their lives for it. And then he goes on to say that, We don't know the extent to which tragic and traumatic events equal God's judgment to those who don't fear him. So he's more talking about there with unbelievers who don't fear him. uh, If God would be pouring out his judgment in that regard now. So I don't think that we can always necessarily make that connection. It all goes back to God's sovereignty, where we don't know everything and and what's going on behind the scenes and all of that, um, why things happen. But with the 2 Corinthians 5 verse, that is talking to believers and that we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So we'll receive what would be due to us for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. So, you know, I've heard people say that they believe when we go to heaven that God will give us, it would basically be like a reward system for the way that we've stewarded our gifts or, or led people to Christ or our good works, the ways we've glorified him, um, whatever the ideas might be, that there will be different like levels of rewards. I've heard some people say they think that some people will get a larger mansion or some people will have a larger crown or some people on the new earth would be like governing different sections of the new earth or something depending on your reward. So, I mean, some of that stuff is not in the Bible at all. And I don't really know what to say about the coming rewards exactly 
but there is a sense in which we see how we will be held accountable for every uh, idle word that we speak and the deeds that we're doing and things like that on earth. So even though we won't be in the judgment as far as getting justice for our sins, having to pay the price and face the wrath of God, we will be held accountable to some sort of standard. And whether that's rewards or or whatever, I don't know, but um, we will be under some sort of accountability and judgment. And so Paul tells us to consider both the kindness and the severity of God. And that's in Romans 11.22. Romans 11.22 says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So just jumping back to the 2 Corinthians 5.10 verse for a moment, I wanted to read the note on that from the Reformation Study Bible. It says, degrees of reward in heaven are taught in this verse. Though Christians have their sins forgiven and will never suffer the punishments of hell, they will nonetheless stand before Christ at the day of judgment to receive various degrees of reward for what they have done in this life. This judgment will include a disclosure and evaluation of the motives of our hearts. So that just gives a little extra insight there on that verse. And then um, verse 11 goes on to say, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. And the note on the fear of the Lord in verse 11 says, Not a terror of eternal condemnation, but a healthy, reverent fear of Christ's displeasure at the choices we have made, the things done in the body. Such a fear would have been a healthy corrective for those Corinthians who were making trouble for Paul, and it should also have corrected the lives of many careless Christians throughout history. So that was just a good wrap up of what I was trying to say, where um, where we will have a type of judgment and accountability. And so we should still have some bit of fear within us, and we are to be pleasing God I liken it to the parent-child relationship, but where as a child and even now as an adult, like with my parents, I am a person who likes to please people and especially my parents. So like I wanted to please them so that they wouldn't be disappointed in me and uh, as a child that I wouldn't get punished or need that correction very often. And so I feel that we should have the same feeling toward God as Christians, that we're trying to please him and not wanting his punishment to have to come. And then knowing that we are going to be held accountable at some point for everything that we do and say. So that should strike some chords of fear, maybe not terrifying to the point of knowing you're going to face eternal condemnation, but just the deep desire to want to please him. Jerry points out in the book that nowadays um, a lot of Christian culture is just talking about God's love and his unconditional love as if he just pays no regard at all to, you know, our sins or the um, frivolous little things that we might be doing or saying that aren't necessarily pure and lovely and all of that that were commanded in Philippians. So it's like people just want to gloss over the wrath of God and the justice of God and uh, the holiness of God and to just land on his love. And we shouldn't do that either because that's an unbalanced view of God and our relationship with him. So we need that fear of God, which includes some sort of fear, fear. And then I have in my notes, God's grace and mercy equals God is our refuge, but he's not completely safe. So at the end of the chapter, Jerry writes, is God safe? The scriptures teach us 
that in his grace and mercy, God allows himself to be our place of refuge. However, there's a larger sense in which God definitely is not safe. Yet in our thinking about him, we've tried to make him exclusively safe. It's no longer in good taste in most quarters to speak of the judgment of God or his impending wrath. When we talk about God's unconditional love, we often mean he simply overlooks or ignores our sinful behavior and would never judge anyone. But God isn't that way at all. Scripture tells us that our God is a consuming fire and cautions us, therefore, to worship him with reverence and awe. And that ties in our memory verse that we've been working on for a couple of weeks, the Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. And that says, therefore, let us be thankful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So number nine, the ninth question in the study guide for this a uh, couple chapters, the first section of the study guide uh, talks about that verse, the Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. It says, what motivational factors does this passage point us toward? And it is toward being grateful, having acceptable worship and reverence and awe to God. So we are grateful for the gift of salvation through Jesus. And we have reverence and awe to God for who he is. And then the next part is, in what ways is our God a consuming fire? And it says you may want to look also at these passages. There's Deuteronomy 4, 24, Psalm 97, 3, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9, and 2 Peter 3, 10. So the notes I wrote down in those passages, Deuteronomy 4, 24 adds a jealous God. The note on that in my Bible said his passion for his holy name, a zeal that demands the exclusive devotion of his people. For Psalm 97.3, we have the visible revelation of God helped God's people appreciate his awesome power. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9, I put vengeance, the punishment of eternal destruction on unbelievers. And 2 Peter 3.10, judgment at the second coming. So one summarizing note from the Reformation Study Bible on these passages, I think it was from one of them, but I don't know which one. Um, It said, the holiness of God and the finality of his judgment on apostates. That is how he's a consuming fire. So it's his coming judgment. Okay, and Jerry ends the chapter by saying, no, God isn't safe, but he's good. And we must keep both these truths in mind if we are to understand and practice the fear of God. And as we'll discover, even his goodness leads us to a proper fear of God when we truly understand it. Number 10 on the study guide said, the passages you've studied in this lesson have no doubt given you an appreciation of the depth and breadth of meaning linked with the fear of God. From what you've seen, would you say that fearing God primarily involves what you know, what you believe, or what you do? And from that, just distilling down those three things, what you know, believe, and do, I was finding a correlation between knowing, believing, and doing with uh, what the definition of faith would be. So like, for example, I have three notes here from three different sources on what they say faith is, because I do know that faith is a combination of probably at least three or more elements. But just real quick, the three references, one of them is by an author and apologist, Natasha Crane. She says that faith is a commitment to a belief. It's a quote or a definition that I found from her in a book that I was reading by her recently. And then we have a note in the Reformation Study Bible on 2 Thessalonians 1.8 that says acceptance, belief, and obedience is what faith is. So that broadens it out a little bit further than just a commitment to a belief but that it's also acceptance and obedience. And then I recently saw on Twitter a tweet from R. Scott Clark, 
And he said that faith is knowledge, assent, and trust, which leads to obedience. So that's pretty much the same thing that the note on Second Thessalonians 1.8 was saying. Um, it's just expanded out a little bit further that faith is knowledge, assent, and trust that leads to obedience. So taken all together, the question was asking, is fearing God primarily what you know, what you believe, or what you do? And my answer is that it's all three, what we know, what we believe, and what we do. Because um, putting all those things together gives us faith. And faith, the Bible tells us, is a gift from God. And it produces these things in us. It produces that knowledge, that assent, that trust, and that obedience in us. And then these elements of our faith produce the fear of God, which is the reverence, respect, and awe for God. So I have not read ahead in the book to know whether Jerry is going to go on to talk about faith in those details or not. But those are things that I joined together and, um, and boiled down. So I wanted to quote Psalm 34, 7 real quick, because that gives us a fairly concise little definition, too, of the fear of God. Okay, so the actual verse of Psalm 34, 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So the note on that verse, for those who fear him, means those who know, revere, and obey him, meaning God. So that encapsulates the three things from number 10, the knowing, believing, and doing. Yeah, um, as I close out, I just wanted to share a little bit of insight or something that I learned, I guess, along the way related to the question of how can we trust God and the notion that he is not safe. So as I shared in my reboot series, which is within my first four episodes of the podcast that I recorded, I share my story and I forget which one of them it is that tells my story of experiencing three pregnancy losses in one year. I at one point uh, had an idea to write a book and the whole the whole working premise of that book was going to be the tension between fear and faith. And, you know, going through the miscarriages themselves was intense grief. And then um, in working through my grief, I learned a lot about God and his character and his attributes because it was really the first time in my faith that I had been faced with anything extremely traumatic and with questions. Like basically, I was raised in a Christian home. I said the sinner's prayer at the age of four. I was always in church. My mom was a church secretary. You know, we went to pretty much everything that the church had every time its doors were open. So, I mean, I knew the gospel message and I embraced it as, you know, being for me, um, that I was a sinner and that Christ died for me. But it was sort of a situation too where there had never been any questioning. It was just like where the child just goes along with the parents and embraces what the parents believe and things like that. So um, I didn't even have any, I don't know what you want to say, training or experience with anything like even apologetics or anything like that. Um, And I never had a reason before that, I guess, to dig in, if you will, to the faith further and to ask hard questions and try to come up with some answers and to really own my faith and embrace my faith for myself. So going through the miscarriages helped me to do all of that. And it was a several year process because as I had the idea of writing a book, you know, about faith and fear and the spiritual things that are going on through something like that, it can't be something just shallow and with pat answers. Like you really have to think hard, think critical, 
and dig in there, dig into some theology and apologetics and all of that good stuff. And as I was reforming, that is what was happening in my life as I was coming across these resources and learning and growing. And I must say that becoming reformed and all of the confessions and catechisms and creeds and everything all went a huge way towards a lot of my growth and understanding of things. So in exploring faith and trying to define what that really was, and of course this is before Reformed theology, before I knew any of that stuff just out there in regular evangelicalism, and this was, let's see, it was in 2013-ish around there, which is 10 years after I had the miscarriages, and I already had our three living daughters, and um, and that's when they all went off to school. So I finally had some time to myself, and I started using that time to try to come up with the whole premise of the book that I wanted to write, and to write down questions and answers, and to really dig in and form what it was that I was going to write. And so to do that, I was trying to define faith and figure out exactly what faith is. What are all the elements that go into faith? And um, I knew part of it had to do with belief, that you have to believe something. And um, also then an element would be trust. And so I started really asking myself, like, after these tragedies of three lives being lost, like, how is it that I still have faith that I still trust God? Like, for me, the whole experience brought me closer to God because of all these questions and answers. And I read all of the Psalms. I used the Psalms as my prayers because I couldn't formulate words to say even And I dug into, excuse me, I had a particular book on the um, attributes of God. And so I studied those because I was also shallow on my knowledge of who God is and what all of his attributes are and what they mean. You know, you can't love someone, serve someone, please somebody, you know, whatever it might be, if you don't know them and their character And so that whole process was amazing. And so I finally truly knew who God was. And then just asking, like, what's the difference between me, who through this experience actually grew closer to God and learning about him and um, embracing him more and all this, to um, somebody else who may have gone through something similar, but would be rejecting God, running away from God, being mad at God. Like, what? what is the difference? Do I have a stronger faith for some reason? And if I do, what makes it stronger? How do I have it be stronger? Like, I didn't know how to grasp onto that concept and describe it or... Um, to even go about figuring out if there was anything. All the time in Christian circles, you're hearing things about growing your faith and strengthening your faith and all of that. And then I know in the charismatic realm, like they have a whole nother, like additional view on faith and always having an emphasis on a stronger faith, you know, faith to move mountains, faith to do miracles, Um, enough faith for healing, all of that kind of stuff. So it was all like, how do you muster up that faith? How do you produce that faith? That type of thing. For me at that time, though, it was just how did I have a faith to hold on to God, to cling to God, to find the refuge and comfort in God. And so I identified belief and trust as elements of faith. And so how was it that I continued to trust God and his sovereignty and trusting him with my life and my future and that things would be okay? 
because if he would allow something that tragic in my life once, then obviously he could do it again. I came to be thinking about expectations and our rights, like, well, what rights do we really have as children of God and what should I be expecting? John sixteen thirty three was a verse that I kept coming back to that says, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace in the world. You will have trouble in the world. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So that verse both tells us that we will have trials and tribulations and at the same time gives us hope and the promise that Jesus has overcome the world. There is a better life coming in eternity. And then also I read through the book of Job during that time and learned a lot from that because I really related to Job in going through that, although I know his calamity which was much greater than mine, but a lot of his feelings and sentiments were the same. Just recognizing God's sovereignty and his might and power throughout that book and how Job ended up seeing that and realizing that and praising God despite all of it was really helpful for me. Job one twenty one says, And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So just to realize that I had no real rights. I mean, I know as children of God, we have a right to his promises to eternal life, to be adopted as sons and daughters into his family, into the body of Christ But outside of that, in the world, as we're living in this fallen world, there's no right and shouldn't be an expectation of ours that we will get to live a life of ease or luxury or comfort. I really came to that understanding, just realizing how high and mighty and sovereign and awesome that God is and how I am just a human I am one of his creation and, you know, the creator can run his creation however he sees best. Uh, Many times in scripture, we see the analogy of humans being the clay and God is our potter. Isaiah 64, 8 says, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. So Isaiah 45, 9 says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. And then to the New Testament in Romans, Romans 9, 20 and 21. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So basically, these verses are showing that God is our creator and maker, and he has the sovereign power to create and, you know, make with us, do with us what he wills. And that we have to then just trust that God is, is good and he has our best interest and good intentions and love in his heart for us. So that is basically the conclusion that I came to that you just come to the fear of God in that it is fearful to trust him, but his sovereignty and power and might just like floors you and you have nothing but to surrender to that and just then knowing and relying on his promises and his love for his children that he provides he protects he's our refuge he's our strength and that he loved us so much to send Jesus his son to die for us and that we are his body, his bride, that he is preparing. And through 
all of the tragedies and struggle and things that we are being sanctified. We are being made more holy and more like Christ as we are to be more molded into his image. Those are some lessons and things that I learned through my tragedy of miscarriages. Those things are what my faith is built on. Now through reforming, I have come to find out and believe that faith is a gift from God, that there is an elect and God gives the faith to those whom he wills. And when he calls someone to salvation, to himself, that his call is irresistible. So he has selected his children from before the foundations of the earth and then called us and given us the faith as a gift. And it is not up to us to be trying to build it up or to become stronger, but he gives to each of us the amount of faith that he wills. So I cannot boast It can't be about me and how strong my faith is or anything that I did, but it is all from God. And so all the more praise and glory goes to him. And so it's just a beautiful picture of surrender and praise that really resulted and came out of all of this for me. So I hope that helps someone out there maybe. And and I guess that sort of answers how we could trust God how he is not safe, but he is good. So next time we will be talking about chapter three. And chapter three is called Soul of Godliness. Should Christians fear God? And I feel like we've already talked about that a little bit this time, but um, it'll be interesting to dive in and see what Jerry says in chapter three. Whoever is going through the study guide with me, lesson two is on chapter three. And we will also be getting a new scripture memory verse. That will be it for this time. If you would like to contact me, go to www.kristen-hamilton.com. Go to my contact page and that has all the ways that you can get a hold of me or uh, join our Facebook group or like the Facebook page or any other social media. Keep reading your Bibles. Bye.